0: On today's episode, Ashley shares the forgotten but chilling story of the heiress Anne Cooper Hewitt. Welcome to Crime Bar.
1: Ashley. Yeah. It'd be like that sometimes. It'd be like that. It'd be sometimes. like that sometimes. <laughs> Life man. If you're listening to this, Ashley and I have this deeply unsettled feeling and we can't put our finger on it. And we're wondering if you're feeling like that too. <laughs> but I guess you can't respond. I feel like <laughs> that sounds like an old, like
0: late night radio show. Like, are you feeling this too? Yes.
1: Like when Harry met Sally. Yeah. Um, Sleepless in Seattle, my my bad. (laughs) Wrong, wrong Tom Hanks movie. Or
0: Yeah, I don't know. We just have this like anxious, sad feeling. Brett said it's all
1: Moon or he said it's all
0: planetary stuff, like Mercury and retrograde or something like that. But I don't think that that's happening right now.
1: Yeah, I don't know what the what they're doing. I don't know what they're doing either, but, yeah, but it's just one of those
0: days. It's an off day, and we both happen to
1: feel like that, and it's just like, meh. Hopefully, we'll be able to perform, and maybe this will put us in a good mood. No? Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: no. No? Perfect. <laughs> d- perfect, d- perfect. Will d- this add to it? I think this will just... It just adds to it in like a little bit of a, a different way. All right. So, this story that I'm covering is about... An heiress named Ann Cooper Hewitt. Never heard of her. Okay. She is... I didn't really verify, like, how we might know that Cooper Hewitt family, like, today. They're sort of like the Vanderbilts. Okay. Like, they're old... Wealthy, old, old money. Old, old, old money. Okay. And, like, very... Yeah, it, that's the best example. Is like they're like, like Great Vander- Gatsby folk. And then like if you if you go to New York City, mm-hmm. it, there's tons of buildings named after them. And and there's somebody's there's, is what you're saying. Yeah, they're like Vanderbilts essentially. Um. So, anyways, she was an heiress from that family, and mm-hmm. she has since died. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. She died like many many years ago. But her family worked really hard to kind of erase her from their like legacy Scandalous I guess. okay. She was yeah she was uh kind of a what is that called like wild a wild card a dark like a stain on their
1: oh like a perfect like a, I legacy. Was say, I was thing. gonna say a dark duck um <laughs> a black swan not the black swan black you, sheep black sheep of the family a dark duck if you will <laughs>
0: um <laughs> sort of kind yeah. of anyways so I can hear in my voice, like how, like the. Yeah, you are, well, yeah. it's also a hundred degrees in here. Yeah, it's so hot in here. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna try to, I'll, I'll try to wake up and bring up. Do the your best. Okay. Well, anyways, so I got all of my info from this woman named Audrey Claire Farley. She wrote a really thoroughly researched book called The Unfit Heiress. It's really, really good. I blew through it um, as like a way to research this and. I feel like this is just like my story today is like a Cliff Notes version of it, but her book is really, really well done. So if you're interested in the story and you want to get like more into it, I would highly recommend reading her book. So the story is about Anne Cooper Hewitt, this young girl. But before we get into her part in it, you have to know her parents. So her mother, Marion Andrews, was born September 20th, 1881, which means she's a Virgo. That's my dad's birthday. September twentieth. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Happy birthday, Papa! <laughs> if you're out there listening, if you're out there. <laughs> so Marion was, she was super beautiful. She had like a very witty, quick sense of humor. Um, she was a good time. Like the home girl, she liked to party. Yeah, she really liked to party. Uh, she was said to be very charismatic, like very glamorous and mysterious. Um, she knew how to play men. Like she was very alluring. Teach me your way. So <laughs> she good. had like a reputation for creating this sort of trance like allure for men, whether Ooh. they, whether they were married or not. Oh, yikes. Okay. Yeah. We don't support that here. No, no, no. So women hated her because she was known for being a homewrecker, especially if that home was wealthy. She was very calculated in her love interest. She did not mess around with broke dudes. That was like not an option for her. No. Marion had been married three times, each husband having left his wife for her, and each one being wealthier than the last. She's like the Angelina Jolie of the the old socialite world. Yeah. She also couldn't be bogged down by motherhood, so when her first marriage produced a son, she gave the baby to (laughs) her. Produced a son, I love that. Well, I didn't know how else to phrase that. Like when She, she, had, she a babe- had one and then oh, yeah, I guess, okay. want it. Well, when she had a baby from her first marriage, she gave him to her mother-in-law to raise and then she just sort of like wasn't in his life. Okay, he, She was like in and out of his life forever. So in 1913, Marion is newly divorced again and she's at a horse show where someone introduces her to a man named Peter Cooper Hewitt. Mm. He is 20 years older than her and married, but those are, you know she probably likes
1: him even more now yeah those
0: are just like trivial details yeah 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 yeah. she doesn't concern herself yeah uh she knows exactly who he is and that he is worth north of three million dollars which today is around 55 million Mm -hmm, mm dollars peter was born to a very wealthy family on may 5th 1861 so he's a taurus Mm
1: -hmm. like you
0: and i getting married i know he was named after his grandfather, Peter Cooper, who made his fortune by creating the gelatin dessert, which is what we call Jello today. Mm-hmm. His grandfather also designed America's first steam locomotive and became a really successful real estate investor. And he, he just did all sorts of different things to grow the family's wealth. Obviously, Peter was a trust funder already, but he actually made his own fortune on top of that through his own inventions. He invented the mercury vapor lamp, which was a light source that didn't produce a lot of heat, in 1901. And he made a million dollars off of it, which was around $32 million then. So Marion, the younger woman, Mm -hmm. strived to win Peter over in ways that his wife never had before, which I think means like sexual stuff.
1: Yeah, I was about to say something, but then I'll just let people fill in the blanks.
0: Peter completely falls for her and they start a very steamy affair that resulted in a pregnancy almost immediately. So she produced. <laughs> she produced a child.
1: I wish, when you say that, I'm like, I picture a tree producing peaches.
0: Oh. You know? I was thinking of uh, birth. Um, like a television
1: producer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so Peter, like when he heard that he was going to be a father, that seemed to kind of snap him out of it, break that spell he was under, and he ghosted her during. The majority of her pregnancy karma honestly for yeah her. um cheating on his wife was like one thing having a child with someone else was a whole other thing especially because he and his wife lucy had tried for years to have kids oh. and she couldn't have yes. kids so it was his that guilt was gonna be yeah him. it was gonna be an, a, a, an extra blow to her for sure of course so Marion was convinced that once peter met his newborn son that would be all it took to leave his wife to be with his new family. But then their daughter, Anne Cooper Hewitt, was born on July 28th, 1914. So she's a Leo. Marion immediately disliked Anne, her infant daughter. She immediately disliked her infant daughter. Okay. <laughs> um, Anne was born three and a half months premature. Why, why, did you, why did you have no reaction to that?
1: I was just thinking, I was going to say responsibility. Who has time for that? Like, that would make me not like someone either. But then I was kidding. And then my jokes are off of warm. Okay. <laughs> it's really hot in here. Okay. It's so
0: warm. Okay. So Anne was born three and a half months premature. So she had a lot of health issues. And Marion thought she was a very ugly baby. Oh, okay. And she didn't like that Anne was so small. Like she didn't like how tiny she was. But have you seen like like She's gonna like your figure. Yeah, have you seen a preemie baby? Like they are a little bit more skeletal. God forbid. Like but they're I think they look a little bit more like alien than a normal newborn. So she was just really turned off by this by the whole appearance of her child. Anne's entire life, Marion called her my ugly little duckling. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, She was also very disappointed to learn it was a girl, not a boy, because she had been banking on Peter coming around if he'd had a son. So Marion didn't think that her plan would work now that it turned out they actually had a daughter. Marion was also very turned off by the fact that Anne had a head full of bushy, dark brown hair. She always told Anne, you were born on an evil day. She was born on the day that World War One began. So she made sure that Anne always associated entering this world with something really horrific. Mm-hmm. So because of this, Anne believed that her lifelong health problems were a result of being born on an evil day, which is really sad because she yeah. like when she was little, she would like wish that she was born on like Easter or Christmas or something happy because it would have meant she would have
1: been healthy. She's not going to have issues later on no, at all. No, none. She's none. going to be totally fully formed mm-hmm. and normal.
0: Marion was living in Paris when Anne was born, and Peter was worried for their safety, obviously. And he insisted that Marion take the baby to the U.S. to live there until it was safe to return to Europe. And wouldn't you be like, oh, my baby daddy wants to take care of his child. That's so sweet. Marion was super pissed because she wanted to stay in Paris, but she did end up doing what he had asked her because she was trying to win him back, but she did not give a shit. She, like, she didn't care about her safety or her certainly not her baby's safety.
1: No, she just wanted her man.
0: So Peter had been living in New York when Anne was born, so this was actually like the first time that he had met his daughter, and he was madly in love with her from the moment he saw her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which... It's sweet. Yeah, it's sweet. It's like a normal reaction, I guess, (laughs) to having a kid. Yeah. He came to visit as often as he could. And he would hold the baby up to the window and show her the city and whisper and sing to her. And this just made Marion hate her daughter more. Like she just, she couldn't understand why Peter was so taken by the baby. So when Marion had become pregnant with Anne, Peter's siblings were furious. They openly doubted that he was really the father. And they accused Marion of being a gold digger, which was like, not yeah, wrong. fair. But anyways, Lucy, his wife, saw all of this, and she felt sorry for that helpless child that was caught up in the midst of it all. Yeah. And obviously, she doesn't want to stay with Peter's cheating ass anyways, but a huge part of her divorcing him was to give baby Anne the opportunity to be more than an illegitimate you know, love child. What a woman. Particularly in the eyes of her own family. Yeah. So... As soon as they divorce, uh, Peter married Marion in 1918. Marion now had four a four times hyphenated last name. I'm not (laughs) kidding. She literally say it for me. um, I didn't write it down because they were all, like, French names that I couldn't yeah,
1: pronounce. Yeah,
0: I couldn't do it. I wouldn't. I almost you wouldn't did, do it
1: to yourself or I, I almost did
0: it. But then it was just like, uh, why would I put myself in that yeah. position? That's mean. Um, but she kept all of them. And then later on in life, after being with Peter, she gets married a few more times. She also keeps all of those last names, too. Perfect. So she's just got she's a, a massive name. She's just a collector of names. So after the war was over, they moved back to Paris as a family this time. And Anne's childhood was a combination of extreme luxury, but also like pretty significant neglect. Anne said later as an adult that when she was very small, her mom had added height to her crib so that she couldn't crawl out. And she used to leave her in there for hours at a time, sometimes for the entire day. And her nannies would be allowed to come in and dress her and change her diaper, but they were instructed to leave her in there for as long as Marion wanted. She's cruel. Yeah. And remember, uh, she hates that Anne is a brunette, which is really dumb because Marian is a brunette too. She has brown hair. She wanted her to be a blonde? Yeah. So from the time that Anne was a toddler through to her early 20s, she would bleach her hair white blonde. This woman is just crap Crazy. Yeah. Peter was a workaholic and he didn't live with him full time. He traveled a lot for work and then he lived half the time in New York. So. When he was home, he was a very engaging father. He had always wanted kids, but obviously he thought that ship had sailed. So he really just like worshipped Anne. He was he was a really good dad. He would crawl around on the floor with Anne and play with her on her level, which was pretty unusual for the time for like a Victorian era. It for was a dad kind of unusual. Dad yeah. Marion hated it. And she told him it's not appropriate for adults to engage like on a child's level. But he told her that his father and grandfather had always done that with him and his siblings when they were young. And he really wanted to create the same memories for his daughter. So she would like begrudgingly like let them play for a little bit on the floor together. And then she would call a nanny to come take the baby away so she could be alone with Peter. Anne said her fondest memories with him are the neighborhood walks the two of them would take around Paris where he would like show her around and buy her little pastries. Or that, like, whenever he was home, she would get lots of, like, hugs and kisses. He gave her way more attention than Marion ever did. And that he would happily dance with her in the living room for as long as she wanted. Very sweet. But then not long after sixth birthday, Peter started experiencing pretty significant health problems. Like, it started out very slow. And then over the course of a year, he eventually became so weak he could no longer pick her up. And then he couldn't even get out of bed. He was totally bedridden. What did he have? I read a few different things. It's not that. I think it started out as pneumonia, but I think he had some type of, um, like, I think maybe lung cancer yeah. or something like that. Because this was in nineteen, the early nineteen hundreds. So there's no way really knowing. No, not really. So while he's bedridden and the doctors are trying to figure out what's wrong with him, rumors start spreading that Marion is having an affair with a Baron. And for, obviously, a chick that we know who is obsessed with, like, climbing the ladder of wealthy and successful husbands, this was an obvious next step. Yeah. Oh, also, Mary and Peter are so wealthy, they don't even live in a house. They live in the Ritz Hotel in Paris. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, apparently, the Baron also lived in the same hotel, so... Obviously carrying on an Very affair convenient. was, yeah, it was super easy for her to do. They live in the same place, but Hopping also the elevator. Peter can't even get out of bed. So, you know, the Baron is also 24 years old. So she's cheating on her like
1: super sick, old husband, sickly, old, 60 yeah. year
0: old husband. And she's just like gallivanting around the child. With this. A teenager, yes. really? Yes. And she didn't even try hiding it. Like, I mean, she would go out to dinner parties and to shows with her new boyfriend and even hosted parties at her well, in her room, whatever you want, to, her suite, with Peter sick, like in the next room. God, these like, chicks. Yeah, <laughs> these these chicks. chicks. One time during one of these parties, Peter's nurse came out and she tried to break the party up because the guests, because they were so loud and drunk and breaking shit, and it was disturbing Peter obviously because he's sick. And uh, Marianne just fired her on the spot. Can't be bothered. Yeah. And then she had to rehire the same nurse because she couldn't find another English-speaking nurse to replace her. <laughs> so Peter was getting worse and worse, and then eventually he had to spend a few days in the hospital. And while he was away, that same nurse that he, she had had to rehire, she says that Marion gave her a mysterious drink and told her to give it to Peter when he returned. She claimed it was a pain-relieving concoction that the baron had given her and that she hoped it would make her husband a little bit more comfortable. But the nurse said, I'm not going to do that. Um, it's obvious this is poison. Uh, yeah, I'm obvi- not doing Obviously, this. I'm not doing this. So she said no. But she wasn't with him 24 7. So there is a chance Marianne could have given that to Absolutely. him when that nurse wasn't around. And then within weeks of him coming home, Peter died on August 25th, 1921, at the age of 60. His fortune at the time of his death was valued at around $4 million, which is about $60 million today. Mm-hmm he had changed his will only 3 weeks before his death which on the one hand
1: Interesting timing. It, yeah
0: it, you could say it's suspicious you could also say he knows he's dying he's failing. it was pretty clear that he was that they all knew that mm-hmm. so he might have just been
1: reevaluating re, yeah I and mean,
0: he had a child now who he, he, it's totally possible that he For was sure. just doing something he was just being responsible so his will stated that his money would be split in a way where Mary and his wife received one-third, and then his daughter Anne would receive two-thirds when she turned 21. And immediately, Peter's siblings took Mary into court to dispute the will. They argued that writing a will in the last weeks of his life, while he was often heavily sedated, was grounds to deem it invalid. But they lost the case, and Marion inherited what he had left her. So his siblings reconvened and then tried to have Anne's inheritance removed on the grounds that she was only a love child born out of wedlock. Therefore, she did not have a legitimate claim to Peter's fortune. But they lost that case too, and Anne inherited her money like normal. But they forever, they never acknowledged Anne as family, ever. So as soon as Peter died, Marion married that young baron. Mm-hmm. And while Peter was alive, Anne had lived with her parents like normal, obviously. She was just a typical little kid. But as soon as he was gone, Marion started taking Anne to various doctors and institutions in the hopes that she could get her committed. Oh, and okay. She's, she's seven. Like, oh, she's a little evil. baby, yeah. you know? Marion insisted that her daughter was feeble-minded, and she wanted a professional diagnosis supporting that.
1: What does feeble-minded even mean? Like, dumb?
0: I'll I'll, I'll get into it. I'll, i explain it later. She claimed that after catching Anne with her hand down her pants one time when she was three years old, Anne had been addicted to masturbating since then. And then on top of that, Marion claimed that she didn't obey authority, she refused to be educated, and she had always been an evil and difficult child. And all of the doctors and specialists that she took Anne to claimed that the little girl was a lost cause, she was a moron with a sex complex, and there was just simply no fixing her.
1: The doctors felt like that? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just wait. They're just like going on WebMD. Worst case scenario. One doctor told her that, quote, Anne is manlike in her urges. And if she keeps at her nasty habit, she won't perceive any need to marry one day.
1: There's so many things wrong with this.
0: Oh, it gets so much worse. This whole story is about women's rights. Okay. Like, it's... Girl power. It's (laughs) crazy. It's really crazy. There's going to be so many moments where you're like, what? Excuse me, what? So that doctor suggested that Marion look into sending Anne to a place for, specifically for feeble-minded children. And she finally found an institution that would accept her. So she sent, she's eight years old at this point. She sends eight-year-old Anne away to the Swiss Alps. And while she's there, she met a little boy her age, and they became friends, as you do nothing weird they used to make up stories and then they would like play together all day and then sneak into each other's rooms after curfew to keep playing and like it just, just friends yeah totally just friends normal shit during one of these after-hour visits and stayed too long and accidentally fell asleep on the little boy's bed next to him nothing happened like I mean, obviously, they're just two little kids. There's little kids who played too late, and they just fell asleep the way kids just pass out. Nothing happened. And then she was still there when the nurse did, like, rounds in the morning and found her there. And Anne was brutally punished for it. Not him? No. Of course. No, not him. Her. Not shocked. So her mother had to cut her vacation short to come collect Anne, and she was so disgusted and furious with her. He's only backs up her whole claim that she's a sex addict. Exactly. As soon as they were alone, Marion slapped Anne across the face and said she didn't know how to set Anne on the right path to fix her nasty habits. So this instance really fueled, like what you just said, Marion's lifelong narrative that Anne was a sex fiend that had, quote, erotic tendencies and that she was impossible to control.
1: And at this point, she's like seven, right? She's eight years old. She doesn't know what any of this means. I know.
0: Marian spoke so openly about Anne's supposed issues that every new school she went to, everyone viewed her as this out of control, feeble-minded sex fiend. So she's just being bullied and harassed everywhere she is. The teachers, the students, anyone and everyone that Anne was around had this notion in their heads and treated her like she was a circus freak. Anne said that every new school she went to, all the students seemed to know ahead of time what her mom would say about her. So she was never able to make friends and she was bullied every day. So obviously she would like, she would lash out and she wouldn't be very cooperative in class. And Marion always had to come get her and find a new school to send her to where the cycle just repeats. And then sometimes Marion would get so fed up that she would just bring her home and hire like a private tutor. But anytime that she felt like the private tutor was judging her or her choices, she would fire the tutor on the spot. And then Anne would have to go to a new school. So it was just this constant...
1: You know, Does, is she forth. not? Is she not figuring out that maybe she should she should just keep her mouth shut because she's Marian? the one? Yeah, she's the one that is. She's doing perpetuating it on all of this. But she's doing it on purpose to make her daughter hate
0: herself. Um. No, she's doing. Well, she's just a bad mom. First of all, she's like just not. Abusive. She's not a great person, but she's also. I mean, I think she did believe that. I think she did believe oh, okay. that Anne was. Those things. Those things. I mean, I, well, I shouldn't say that. I think that she was, I don't know. She's just not a good mom. I'll get, but I think I'll answer most of your questions throughout the story. Like the story itself. Okay. So then, as Anne got older and she had a little bit more independence, Marion made it a point to isolate her from her peers. Like if she would, you know, befriend neighbors or kids in her building or whatever like that, Marion would just go and like meddle. And, yeah. and like claim that, you know, Anne was saying this about you behind your back or whatever, just stuff like that. So nobody wanted to be friends with her. So she didn't really have a choice, but to become friends with the help in their home. She was friends with like the housekeepers and the cooks and the nannies and chauffeurs, but nobody her own age, you know? She even asked the um, chauffeur once when she was little, if he would take her for a drive and not bring her back home. That way she wouldn't have to be with her mom anymore. Anne claimed that, Her mother was very abusive. She said once when a man stood Marion up for dinner, she broke a wine glass over Anne's head. (sighs) Another time she got angry and she put a cigarette out on Anne's arm. Anne said that the hired help was always kind to her and that, of course, her father, before he passed, was always kind to her. But she just believed that all mothers treated their daughters poorly. And it wasn't until she was old enough to go to school that she learned that other girls were not abused by their moms. Throughout her childhood and adolescence, Anne needed a lot of health care, probably because she was born a preemie. She was just always very sickly. She had lots of lots of issues. And the cost associated with that was something that Marion made sure everyone knew about. And she often told Anne, You're lucky your father left us money. Otherwise, the cost of caring for you would bankrupt me. I'm so sorry. I'm an inconvenience. I know. I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> yeah. Whenever they would meet someone new... Marion would introduce Anne as her moron or imbecile daughter. She regularly tried to sell people on this narrative that Anne's mental state was like significantly diminished. Marion was also, not surprisingly, allegedly a really terrible employer who was prone to outbursts and firing people on the spot for dumb reasons, like all of the tutors and then that one nurse who tried Mm -hmm. to break up the party and that kind of thing. So if Anne was polite or you know like smiled at staff members or waiters or anyone in uniform essentially, Marion would berate her and remind her she was above those people and needed to treat them as such. And just to give like a little insight into how wealthy they are, Marion would buy expensive fur coats specifically for her housekeepers to polish her shoes with because regular like rags and, and towels were like, or cloths, you know. It's too poor yeah, to be th- in the th- house. Yeah, they, they weren't good enough. So she would literally buy actual fur for polishing her shoes.
1: Priorities are wrong. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Just throw, a, throw that just, while, just wild card a, out there. <laughs> just a little
0: bit. She lied to the courts when Anne was growing up about the cost of Anne's living expenses as a way to get more allowance from Anne's trust fund. Anne said Marion blew through her own inheritance within just a few years of Peter's death. So Marion would force Anne to help her lie to the courts to try to access more money from, from from her from her inheritance. So she was just a real gem. Yeah, you know she was like one of those people. She was not a good mom. She was well, not a good person at all actually. Uh, you know that hotel Hotel del Coronado on yeah. Coronado outside of yeah, San Diego. Absolutely. It's that big one with the red I know you're roof talking about and whatever. White. Um, That was a favorite of Anne's and Marion's. They'd spend weeks at a time there. And as usual, Anne would make friends with the staff. They were such regulars and she was so close to the staff of the hotel that The manager actually planned to throw Anne a very lavish birthday party when she turned 20 in um, 1934. The hotel was going to take care of everything. There were going to be like huge floral arrangements and uh, catered food and an open bar. And then they had invited all of the young guests at the hotel as a way to try to help her make friends. How
1: sweet is that? I know,
0: but isn't that sad too that they could see like how she was so sweet but she was so lonely yeah she just wanted friendship and so they
1: were just like well the fact that other adults are so taken by her yeah. just only shows how sweet and yeah. gentle and likable mm-hmm. she is yeah this was supposed to be a surprise party actually but
0: somebody slipped up and told ann about it and ann was so excited because uh actually after her dad died her mom had stopped celebrating her birthdays so forget oh. forget like Shocker. birthday parties so t- the idea of a birthday party was something so distant from like her, you know, when her It's like a first fantasy years, almost, almost like a fantasy, yeah. So she hears about it. She's super excited. She runs to her mom to
1: tell her oh, no, 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 about no, this no, party no. because
0: obviously her mom loves a party. So she's thinking that Marion's going to be super so excited. Big or happy. Right. Marion lost her shit. Of course. She called the manager up to their suite and screamed that she was not a pauper and she didn't need charity. So there would be no party. And Anne said that she was standing there and just like she thought she was gonna die of embarrassment. She was so humiliated. Yeah. So there's no party. And a month later, the ladies are lunching outside at the hotel on the on the deck overlooking the ocean. And Marion is being very inquisitive. She's asking lots of questions about Anne's goals and What she wants for her future. Does she want to travel? Does she want to get married? Would she like to be a mother one day? And I guess back then you were a minor until you turned 21. So she had just turned 20. So, And she's going to inherit all of her money in a year. Yeah. So it just wasn't weird. It wasn't weird or unusual to be having this conversation. But very
1: manipulative considering the person.
0: She's got to make plans to be independent, move out on her own, all that stuff. So it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't weird. And then, so Anne said yes to all of the questions. She was a, you know, totally normal girl who wanted a normal life for herself. And she wanted to get married and have a baby one day. And Marion laughed and said, you would make a terrible mother. And as sad as this is, that comment didn't really like bother Anne because her entire life, Marion had always said that to her. Like she had this really treasured um, doll that Mm -hmm. her dad had given to her when she was a kid. And it was like her security blanket, you know? And Marion would always take it away as a form of punishment. And then she would like watch her play with it and tell her she's not good with her little baby and that she'd be a bad mom. <laughs> oh my she's God, a terrible a Psychological
1: trauma. She's terrible,
0: terrible. Okay, so the conversation, it continues. And then all of a sudden, Anne is doubled over in pain. Like she can't speak, she can't walk. Her stomach is hurting so bad. Yeah. She's desperate to get to a doctor and Marion insists that rather than go to a local doctor in San Diego, they need to get to the to San Francisco to see Anne's regular doctor. So she has their chauffeur drive Anne all the way back to San Francisco, which in today's time takes about nine hours. I was say eight or nine. So I can't imagine how much longer and honestly how much more like uncomfortable it would be to do that drive in nineteen thirty four. And Anne is literally writhing in pain. It the feels whole time. time sensitive to yeah. me. So she gets to the hospital in San Francisco, and the family physician, uh, Doctor Tillman, he walks in and he says, "Well, Anne, I understand you have appendicitis." But that's all that happened. Like, he just entered the room and said that. He didn't touch her stomach. He didn't examine her before making that statement. And they hadn't seen a doctor before that. And yeah. so he just made that diagnosis without actually verifying it. Then he takes her to another room where there is a psychologist named Mary Scally waiting for them. And she starts asking Anne questions like, what's the longest river in the United States? When was the battle of Hastings fought? Why did the pilgrims come to America? What is the length of a presidential term? And Anne, like she started out by answering some of the questions, but then eventually she just stared at the woman and said, why are you asking me such asinine questions? My tummy hurts. (laughs) I know. Like she's in so much pain. So yay for her. You should always be your own advocate. Um, but then later, Anne said that nobody explained what this had to do with her stomach pains. And they scheduled her appendectomy to be performed by another doctor named uh, Dr. Boyd for four days later. If you have appendicitis, you have to have your appendix removed literally asap. immediately. Yeah. Because if your infected appendix bursts, it can be life-threatening. So technically, an appendectomy is an emergency surgery. So it's really weird that the doctor scheduled it for... Multiple Four days. days later. Yeah. So then I kind of, at first I was like, well, I wonder, this is 1934. Maybe they weren't that familiar. Maybe they didn't know maybe yet. Maybe they didn't know. Um, maybe they didn't know it was an emergency surgery. So I just did like a quick search on the history of appendectomies yeah. and appendicitis. That's not true. Yeah, it's, it's been long. <laughs> it's been around for a while. Appendicitis has been studied for centuries, and the first successful appendectomy was done in the year 1735.
1: So they had a couple hundred years. Literally, they've
0: had a lot of yeah. time. So that's that's not true. So anyways, she has her appendectomy. She's told that it went perfectly fine. But while she's recovering in the hospital, her mom doesn't come to visit her, which was very odd. And then she starts to notice that the doctors and the nurses keep whispering about her. I already
1: know what's happening.
0: There's this, like, very sad kind of vibe. Yeah, ominous. Like, yeah, yeah. and this this sort of sad vibe amongst the staff. And she doesn't understand what's going on. And so then she starts to think maybe when they opened her up, they found that she has, like, cancer or something. Like, maybe she's dying and they don't know how to tell her. And her mother's too broken up to come to see her. Like, you know, maybe it's something like that. Then she learns during her appendectomy, the doctor had sterilized her. Yep. Friggin knew it. So she laid there floored. She couldn't believe that a doctor could just decide to do that without her consent. And she hears the nurses whispering about her like, how is our idiot patient doing today? And oh, she still doesn't suspect a thing. And then after hearing, I know. And then after hearing a nurse whispering that Anne's mother was, quote, so brave to make such a difficult decision, it hit her. Anne was a minor, so Marion could make medical decisions for her. Anne was set to inherit her trust fund in 11 months, at which point Marion would be cut off financially. And then she remembered a detail in her father's will, something that before now she had never really given much thought to. There was a stipulation in his will that said if Anne died childless... Her inheritance would revert back to her mother, Marion. And then a nurse kind of offhandedly told her she was really lucky that her appendix didn't burst in that four-day window between her supposed diagnose, diagnosis and the surgery. And then Anne realizes she probably didn't have appendicitis at not. all. And so she thinks that during that lunch, her mom orchestrated this whole thing and put something like in her drink to cause really bad stomach of course. pains.
1: She found out that she wanted to be a mother and mm-hmm. then she screwed her over for the yep. rest of her life.
0: And then the whole time that she's in the hospital, Marianne never comes. And then when the hospital stays over, she doesn't come to pick her up. She sends her chauffeur to pick her up. And then while Anne is recovering at home, Marianne had insisted that to truly allow her proper rest, they needed to remove the phone from her room. The bedside lamp, which makes no sense, and that um, the housekeeper should actually
1: lock Anne inside her room. I feel fi- I don't know if it's the heat, but I feel physically sick right now. Yeah, I if if I saw Marion right now, <laughs> oh I know I would hit her with my car and not and not stop. Yeah. I would not feel bad. Yeah. So she claimed
0: that locking Anne in the room would allow for an easy recovery, but obviously all that it was meant for was to isolate her so that she couldn't tell anybody what happened. So she was locked in a bedroom with no escape and no way to communicate with the outside world for weeks. The only contact she had was when the housekeeper would knock on the door with meals and then when she would come back to take the empty dishes away. So anytime Anne mentioned her suspicions, Marion would insist that Anne was just delusional and oh. that she wasn't sterilized.
1: Real quick, does Anne become a serial killer? No. Okay, because that would be understandable. I'm just saying, like this girl, like when you hear childhoods like this and just constant, just, I, I would just not be shocked or feel or blame her. No. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But she's anyways. a
0: really sweet, wonderful person.
1: Great. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes it even worse.
0: So I'm gonna give you a very, very quick crash course, crash course, crash course, crash course. I'm gonna give you a really quick crash course in eugenics, like as quickly as I can. Yeah. So in 1883, this super racist, elitist rich dude named Sir Francis Galton coined Mm -hmm. the term eugenics. After reading his cousin Charles Darwin's work, Francis became obsessed with the idea of improving the human race. He came from a really wealthy family and he hated that the poor depended on charity from upper class families like his. So he came up with this idea, eugenics, as a way of like Purifying the human race,
1: well, like the Nazis, based a lot of their well, yeah, yeah, based it on eugenics. Yes,
0: he believed if well-born women produce more children, then eventually bad people, deformed people, criminals, poverty, disease, and so forth, that would all be eradicated from society. So this is what's considered positive eugenics, where you're encouraging higher-class women to have more children. But that idea of positive eugenics inspired a man named Charles Davenport and really laid the groundwork for his ideas that later became known as negative eugenics. That's where you collect data on lower class people or people deemed less than others and then sterilize them with or without their consent. He believed things like poverty and promiscuity were traits that we inherit like hair or eye color. Mm -hmm. So Francis believed eugenics would become like a form of religion and that people all around the world would follow and that it was the only way to save civilization. So his ideals were much more like preached. Like produce pure folk. Yeah. Like so he, his, it it just, his, how, what do you want to say? Like a, he just thought it would become like a religion. Yeah. Like not everyone's going to follow it, but a lot of people will and they're, they're all going to get behind this racist idea of purifying the human Human race. race. Um, It wasn't, not I'm not saying this in defense of it at all, but it wasn't about taking people's autonomy away. Okay. It wasn't about making decisions for people. It was a suggestion, was like, really. Yes. Like, this is what I believe. Follow me. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles, on the other hand, he was like, no, 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 I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to do things differently. So he founded the Eugenics Records Office and he hired a staff and field members who would essentially investigate lower income society, especially immigrant neighborhoods. They would go door-to-door to to collect data like um, family medical history, uh, physical deformities, whether or not addiction ran in your family, and so forth, Like stuff like that. They used this data to try to sway lawmakers into passing sterilization laws and minimize immigration numbers and prevent interracial marriage. They were really afraid that the white race would be polluted via outsiders, But not just by people of color, but by, like, the lowest class of their own kind. Or just different religions. A.K.A., no, white trash. Well, I mean, probably, but Mm -hmm. that's... Not not, maybe in this particular thing. Not not particular. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. It's anything that is not them. So it's like...
1: Because the Nazis consider, like, gypsies and Jews to be... Right. Those that would produce people that are feeble-minded and aggressive or steal, and things like that.
0: Yeah, so their goal, this eugenics office or whatever it's called, their goal was to preserve the purity by eliminating the less desirables, which was anything that they deemed to be white trash, any person of color, anyone who was poor or disabled or promiscuous was considered a risk of polluting the superior race. So what they believed to be the superior race was not just about being white, it was also very much about just being upper class. So California passed their first sterilization law in nineteen oh nine. And by nineteen twenty one, more than twenty two hundred people had been sterilized. And the majority of them were like either in institutions or prisons, but plenty of them were just typical citizens who, you know, just went to the doctor for some routine thing and came out sterilized.
1: Well
0: (laughs) don't need more of you. (laughs) Yeah. So some other states um, passed some laws allowing for sterilization, but it seems that California was really like the mother load of the problem and their numbers were much, much higher. Yeah. So a 16-year-old girl in Virginia named Carrie Buck was sterilized without her consent after a cousin raping her resulted in a pregnancy. She was considered promiscuous and feeble-minded because she gave birth out of wedlock. So when she was committed, doctors sterilized her. She, her mother, and her newborn daughter were all diagnosed as feeble-minded. The nurse who diagnosed the newborn, she said that it was just, when I looked in the baby's eyes, she just had a look about her and I, I just knew it. She was evil or something? Yeah. No, feeble-minded. Feeble. I, don't, I still don't really get what to feeble- get. Mind. Okay. I'm <laughs> going to tell you, don't worry. So the judge in that case, Oliver Holmes, said, quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for their crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. So he ruled that the state of Virginia was within their right to sterilize Carrie. So this that went before the Supreme Court. I don't know if I said that. That was a, a case that went to the Supreme Court. So that really, really solidified the legality of forced sterilization for all states after that or all states that were implementing it, I should say, just so long as the woman in question was deemed feeble-minded. So more and more states begin to pass their own laws, and the popularity of eugenics just starts to grow. So priests began preaching on the importance of responsible breeding. Um, things like state fairs would hold contests where participants would be reviewed the way livestock was. And if you had like a straight enough nose or a creamy enough complexion you'd win ribbons and prizes and things like that
1: this feels like a weird scary movie like kind of like 1984 animal farm like a dystopian type thing so these these this idea eugenics and sterilization um
0: well how should i say this it originally or came from this uh galton guy Mm -hmm. francis galton which then inspired some americans and i think charles davenport was one of them And um, that got in front of some German scientists, which then transpired into um, Nuremberg Laws and uh,
1: the Nazi party, so. Well, it's kind of like playing the game of telephone where one guy comes up with an idea and then all of a sudden they're like loosely basing off of that and getting it so wrong and then making it something incredibly dark and twisted and sick.
0: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't good to start with. It was—it it was all, it was rated, all bad. racist, yeah. elitist stuff. But it wasn't about committing a crime. But then other people come along evolved and, and it evolved it. into uh, committing crimes. So in the early 1930s, uh, the Nazi Party in Germany is uh, being led by Adolf Hitler, and they started to get a lot of negative attention for developing their eugenic sterilization program. That impacted more than 350,000 people, including children. Mm-hmm. And apparently sterilizing children, that's where America draws the line. Because, oh, cool. Right, right. Because- um, They're like, that's weird. That <laughs> The attention that Germany was getting for that-
1: Very It negative. had a
0: very negative impact on the popularity of sterilization here in America mm-hmm. because uh, Americans hated Hitler. And this was before, you know,
1: okay. he really- Came into his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was they just America had a, a gut instinct, if you will, about yeah, the guy, <laughs> if
0: you will. Okay, so that's my brief. Thank you. Explanation for eugenics. So we're gonna go back to Anne now. So a year goes by after her procedure, and life goes back to normal. But all that time for the next year, Anne is preparing to file a lawsuit against her mother as soon as she gets her money. At a girl. So on her twenty-first birthday, she packed her bags, moved into her own apartment accessed her inheritance for the first time, and then hired a lawyer. They confirm with multiple doctors that Anne's claims are true, and they find that Anne has definitely been sterilized and can never conceive a child. Her fallopian tubes have been completely removed, which that in itself is kind of extra, because typically when you sterilize someone, you just... I don't know if it's like snipping or twisting well, the fallopian tubes. Well, people call like tube tied, like so, yeah, your tube, tube side, tied. You, they're they're tying your fallopian tubes
1: because it can't it can be undone. Yeah,
0: but this this doctor literally removed her fallopian tubes. Sickening. Completely. So she had no fallopian tubes in her body. So she did she have a she didn't have a hysterectomy? No, because a hysterectomy is when you remove the your uterus. uterus. Yeah. Okay, I thought so that She did maybe that didn't happen. It was just the fallopian tubes. So they also discover through this investigation that Marion had used money from Anne's trust fund to pay two separate doctors to perform Anne's supposed appendectomy. She paid the Dr. Tillman guy to order the surgery, Mm -hmm. but then she also paid this other guy, Dr. Boyd, to perform the surgery. So that surgery at the time typically would cost a few hundred dollars, but they found that she had paid paid each doctor $9,000 which today is
1: $1.7 She has this incredible ability of making everything as bad as it could possibly be morally. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And honestly, this is such a condensed version. Like, there's so much mm-hmm. more. Of course. So, Anne files a civil suit against her mother and both the doctors on January 6, 1936. She's suing them for $500,000 which is around $10 million today. The San Francisco D.A. also brings a criminal suit against Marion and the doctors for conspiracy to commit mayhem. And at the time, mayhem was defined as unlawful, malicious removal of a member of a human being or the disabling or disfiguring or rendering it useless. So there was a lot of debate surrounding whether or not the removal of Anne's fallopian tubes was considered disfiguring. It was also highly debated whether or not Marion and the doctors had acted lawfully by sterilizing someone who had been deemed by a psychologist unfit to reproduce. Mm -hmm. Society at large believed, and according to California law, pleasure was considered a universal right, but procreation was not. So authorities believe that by removing fallopian tubes of someone deemed feeble-minded, it meant they were only removing a quote useless organ or a possible threat but that did not impact Anne's ability to experience sexual pleasure so their argument is that it's it was technically technically and they were sort of i mean not right technically legally in california at that time it was okay to remove fallopian tubes so dr boyd told reporters he performed the sterilization at Marion's request because Marion said her daughter was feeble-minded and that she feared Anne would find herself in a moral dilemma one day. He said, quote, cases like this in which a parent orders a moron child sterilization occur every day. So this is where I'm going to explain feeble-minded. I realize now I should have done it way earlier. Yeah. Um, at the time in the 1930s, it actually had quite a few different meanings. It was like a very open-ended thing. It just meant like, Weak minded, therefore, you could apply it to any number of people that you deemed as being bad or wrong or less than you. So sometimes it meant epileptic people, alcoholics, sex workers, criminals, immigrants, interracial couples, cu- people of color like you name it. You could basically apply it to anyone you didn't like or who did things you didn't agree with. I should have used that insult a few times. <laughs> well, now you can. People have You can now. <laughs> Marion used feeble-minded as a way to describe Anne as a sexual deviant. So back then, any woman considered to be promiscuous was also thought to be intellectually stunted. Therefore, certain people, like a, um, a parent or a spouse, could potentially authorize a doctor to sterilize the woman so as to not risk producing more people like that. So that's what Marion tried to say Anne was, which is rich... Coming from a woman who at this point has been married like six times and conceived the daughter in question oh, by look. having sex with a married man. Yeah. Oh. So a hearing was held to determine if criminal charges could actually be a part of the trial. And the judge questioned the psychologist who had given Ann that um, mental evaluation. Mm-hmm. So that was the uh, um, the test where she asked questions like what's the longest river in America and all that stuff. The test showed that Anne was considered to be the mental age of eleven. So I mean, I would have passed, I would have failed that too. I know. If I—that's I, like literally what I thought when I was reading some of the questions. I was like, I—they probably be like, Ashley, you have the mind of a newborn. Like how, Ashley, you haven't
1: even been born yet. How have you survived? <laughs> You're in, this in the womb. <laughs> yes, still.
0: So the judge in the courtroom is like, "Do the test on me." <laughs> so she does it. Mm-hmm. Like she sits on the stand, the psychologist, and she does the test on him and says that the judge has the mental age of a 12 year old and he laughs and he tells the courtroom i thought it was going to be something more like eight years old this test is just too silly for words and then he turned to ann and said in front of the whole courtroom that he had met few people who think as clearly as ann does and that she was one of the most well-spoken people he'd ever met and he didn't think she was feeble-minded at all
1: oh can you imagine that feeling someone that is like of a certain status and intelligence and Yep. Position everything. Yeah. Looking in the eye and being like, You're fine. Right. Actually, these other people suck. So the judge signed an arrest warrant for Marion and the two doctors and said, The
0: necessity and the desire to bear children is something to not idly be interfered with. So obviously the press had a field day with the story. Marion had already been pretty, um, like in terms of the tabloids or whatever you want to call it. She was pretty well known. She's at in that the public point. eye. Yeah. So then all of this, you know, this story coming up, it was just so salacious. So public debate was intense. Half the country firmly believed Marion had done the right thing. And the other half was horrified to learn that forced sterilization was, you know, much more common than they'd previously thought. So Dr. Tillman told reporters that there are many women in San Francisco and the state who have been sterilized during surgery and just don't know about it. He said it's not an uncommon operation and that if such an operation was performed on his own daughter he wouldn't tell her for her own sake so can i just say like really quick yes. fuck men oh really decisions for, for a woman's body yeah. yeah my dad told me that i dropped the f-bomb too much in our show and he was like you know if you just save it for on occasion <laughs> it'll have more impact <laughs> well we saved it
1: and that applies so that's
0: my f-bomb for the episode and i hope it had a lot of impact so as soon as Marion learned about the arrest warrant, she tried to pay Anne's lawyer off to get him to drop the case and huh. he denied it and then told the press about it.
1: Good. So as
0: soon as she was called out like that, she fled California and she went into hiding. So weeks went by and the, the trial kept getting delayed because they couldn't find her. And then eventually the DA was just like, we gotta just get a move on. So let's just try the doctors first and we'll figure Marion mm-hmm. out some other time. Yeah. So the trial began in August of 1936. The jury was made up of nine men and three women, and the press identified them as three childless women. The defense (laughs) planned to focus heavily on this. I know. Focus heavily on the psychology test performed before that surgery just to show like how ludicrous it was. Like, for example, one of the questions asked Anne to state the colors found on the American flag, and her answer was red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. But she got a score of zero for that question because they said that white is not a color. So they called this an intelligence test, but it was basically a civics test designed to give doctors the power to deem someone an idiot, imbecile, or moron. All three of those categories reflected someone with the mental capacity of a different age. And it really just separated high class people with an education from the lower class who were mostly people of color who didn't have the same education, if any. And if someone was found to be in one of those categories, they were considered feeble-minded. And according to the law, a feeble-minded person needed to be sterilized so as to not pass along those genes into future generations. So if you were labeled feeble-minded and then found yourself at the mercy of a doctor, you were likely to be sterilized with or without your consent or knowledge. So Anne made these very salacious claims about her mother's drinking and gambling and gambling away her, like Anne's trust fund. Uh, her promiscuity and then the abuse that she inflicted on Anne and every claim that she had made had multiple points working against Marion in terms of like public opinion for example when Anne showed the courtroom the burn on her arm from that time that she put the cigarette out on her forearm uh, that that alone turned a lot of people away from Marion but not because of the abuse it was because she women... She smoked! Because yes, I knew it, Because yeah. women should not be smoking. Society oh, at large yeah. believed that men could handle the habit of smoking, but if women smoked, their bodies reacted differently. It affected their judgment, it triggered the imagination, and it unleashed all sorts of profane
1: desires. Well, Ashley, I don't know if you know this, but women are more stupid than men, <laughs> so we don't need any help getting dumber. Yeah,
0: and then women also... Obviously, we're not supposed to be indulgent in sex outside of marriage. Mm-hmm. But Anne and various household staff claimed that for a full year before the sterilization, Marion was very obviously engaging in a romantic relationship with Dr. Tillman. He denied the romantic involvement, but he did admit to spending time with the family often enough that he essentially observed Anne for a year before doing that. And he said that he was able to determine that Marion was correct in saying and was feeble minded. Dr. Tillman said in court, quote, I felt completely justified sterilizing Anne, both from a moral and scientific standpoint. After all, the young woman had been labeled a high grade moron. And then on the topic of observing her, he said his conclusion was that Anne was quote, unreliable, easily influenced, untruthful. And dangerously oversexed, I believe it is an injustice to all concerned to allow the feeble-minded to bring children into the world. I would have taken the same action if it were my own daughter. Has Anne even had sex at this point? Uh, I mean, no. uh, Well, well, I don't know. There's uh, you didn't ask her. I I didn't ask, (laughs) and she didn't come out. You didn't Google
1: Anne's sexual partners, right?
0: (laughs) Anne claimed that um, during that whole like romantic relationship between the doctor and her mom that. Dr. Tillman came on to her. He made a pass at her and she rejected him. So it just kind of gives you a little bit of a
1: a good a, picture a of what this doc is of like. of this dude is. Yeah. yeah.
0: Finally in
1: the midst of the trial, police... <laughs> he was he was like it's a test. I want to see if you really are overset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you pass this time. <laughs> Finally
0: in the midst of the trial, police found Marion in a hospital um, in New Jersey. She had been admitted a week earlier after taking an overdose of sleeping pills and told the press I'm sorry, of course. I would be sorry to learn that anyone I know has attempted suicide. But there's no use in pretending there's a relationship that doesn't exist. And whenever Anne did something like as a child to upset her mom, like if she got in trouble at school or mm-hmm. whatever it is, all the other the other adults would be like, look at the distress you're causing your mother. You know, like she would get blamed for it. And then when her mom's suicide attempt was reported on in the papers, Anne was blamed for Once that again. too yeah reporters and authorities they all said things like look at the emotional toll you're putting on your mother and that kind of thing so whether the suicide attempt was real or not she recovered really quickly but to avoid being extradited to california she paid her doctor off to continually insist that Marion was too sick to leave the hospital but she did need to like legally she had to give a response so she mm-hmm. filed a response to be read in court that just reiterated like all that same bullshit she used to say to, about her when she was a kid. Um she said Anne was feeble-minded, addicted to masturbation since she was 3 years old. Um Anne refused to be educated, she was disobedient, and tried to run away with the chauffeur once. And then now as an adult, the worst of Marion's claims was drumroll
1: please. Okay, um <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a horse racing sign. Yeah, um, 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 yeah. Anyways, her,
0: her worst claim was, Anne had a penchant for men in uniform, which means she's attracted to the working class man, and that is shameful
1: and below her station. Who doesn't like a guy in a uniform? I know. Come on, Anne. So, or Marion, man Wait, <laughs> no, wait. wait. Marion. Marion. <laughs> Come
0: on, Marion. So Anne, very rightfully so, said... No, it isn't me who leads a shameful life. It's my mother, Like obviously, yeah. Yeah. So Marian's whole argument was sort of like, look at how dumb and out of control my daughter is. She left me no choice but to sterilize her. Like, my hands are tied here. And Anne knew that her mom was following the story in the paper and that her photo was in every paper. And so she stopped, sort of as like a big middle finger to her mom, she stopped dyeing her hair. Good. So she was seen all, yeah. So this story of an heiress suing her mother and her doctors was just the epitome of salacious, sensational. It was just massive news. Anne and her mother, the details of their lives, no matter how private or small, were heavily dissected by the press. What they wore, what they ate, who they spent time with, where they lived, where they traveled, their vice of choice, who they dated, even what kind of lingerie they wore was up for public opinion and judgment. It's so, like being a Kardashian. But, well, but it's not really <laughs> it's like being a reality star. So both women were like really heavily dragged through the mud. Marion claimed that Anne's infatuation with men in uniform bordered on addiction. Oh my God. She said she once had to drag Anne kicking and screaming from a bellhop's bedroom. And then on another occasion, she caught Anne sitting on the lap of a black man who worked as a porter on a train. So many doctors and psychologists believe that people of higher class were at risk of going insane by bringing hired help into their homes because they thought that servants, who were typically people of color, corrupted and awakened this primal desire in otherwise noble, which means white, members of society.
1: These people had too much time on their hands. They're coming up with some wacky stuff.
0: So Marion had released this statement that Anne was a menace to society because of her sex drive. And Marion was protecting both Anne and society by blocking her from ever getting pregnant. So you've got to kind of remember, I know it's really crazy, but you do have to remember Marion came from a Victorian era, whereas Anne grew up in the age of the flapper girl. The flapper was a new symbol of female sexual desire and pleasure, freedom, sex appeal, independence, Mm -hmm. freedom, equal rights, all that stuff. But ironically, like, given the era that Marian grew up in and her sexual escapades, mm-hmm. like, technically she was the wild one, whereas Anne, on the other hand, had virtually, had basically no life experience at all by this point, so mm-hmm. she was really tame in comparison. But, I mean, that was, that ruined her argument, you know? Marianne's yeah. whole argument was based on the idea that Anne was oversexed and had a severe sex complex. So Marion told the press that she believed if Anne became pregnant, she would neglect her child or even drown it in a fit of rage. Which is like, remember that Marion had a kid from her first marriage that she just pawned off. Like, she didn't want to be a mom, you know? So it's like, whatever. Marion publicly claimed that when she saw three-year-old Anne put her hand down her pants, she didn't want to believe her child was disgusting like that. But a few years later, when Anne was caught sleeping on the bed of you know, that boy at yes. the institution, Marion knew for certain that her daughter was a sex craved, irreversibly damaged and deranged little girl. She's also saying all of this in the press during a time where women were changing and becoming more liberated. It's a time in women's history referred to as like the new woman. This new woman was more independent. She got a higher education. She fought for more rights and she didn't want to simply stay home and like give birth anymore. Women were getting involved in politics. Now they engaged in meaningful meaningful conversations and debates and things like that. Marian's generation, the Victorian generation, believed that intense conversations posed a danger to women. They needed lots of rest and seclusion so as to not overstimulate the nervous system. This Victorian generation believed that sex was purely for procreation and that it was vital to not overindulge in it, otherwise you might zap the man's virility. But the new woman enjoyed sex, she was empowered to explore her sexuality and no longer believe that she could only experience sex in the confines of marriage. You know, this new woman, she's taking birth control and going to college, you know? Mm-hmm. So like things are really, really changing at this time. But men believe that liberated women would be the downfall of society. And at that time, men made all of the decisions in our society. Yeah. So Anne had everything working against her in terms of court. You know, it was just all men making those decisions. So even some of the witnesses who testified for Anne weren't really enough to help her win. So like the anesthesiologist from Anne's procedure stated that the patient was to undergo a sterilization and that no no nurse, no doctor, no paperwork, nothing stated anything about an appendectomy. And then Marion's ex-husband, the baron... Oh, did, did I mention that that didn't last? I, I kind of just <laughs> assumed, I think. So he told his wife on his deathbed in 1934 that Marion had intentionally interfered with Anne's schooling in the hopes to make her narrative that Anne was a moron a reality. So the baron's wife had told the press what he'd supposedly confessed, but that also wasn't enough to help Anne. So the judge ended up finding the doctors innocent and dismissed the case on the fourth day of the trial. So it was actually like really short. Yes. He said no crime had been committed and that if laws in California led to situations that seem unjust. The solution is to go to the legislators, not the courts. So this case had become a really big public spectacle, obviously, where Anne and Marion were both dissected and dragged through the mud, all for the same reason, whether or not these two women were acceptable members of society, therefore fit for motherhood. So as the DA was prepping for Marian's uh, criminal trial, Anne backed out of it. The whole case hung on Anne's testimony. So without that, they had no choice but to drop the charges against her mom. And Anne said that she, at that point, she was just ready to move on with her life. Like, she didn't want to put her- She had zero hope in this situation. and she didn't want to put her or her mom through this again. They had already taken, it really taken a toll on both of them because they were just both brutally dissected. absolutely. So after the trial, Anne told reporters that unlike her mother, she would plan to marry a man that she loved, And until she found that man, she was content being alone. So she insisted. Going forward, she wanted to find a really nice companion to live a really quiet and ordinary life with. She did not want to live like this big heiress anymore. She didn't like that. So she married this really nice older mechanic, and then they divorced three months later. Oh, He didn't like the notoriety that came with marrying her, and he wanted his old quiet life back. And the press blamed Anne for disrupting this sweet man's quiet little life with her big <sighs> dramatic one. Right. Then she marries a bartender who was very young and wanted to be a movie star.
1: He, so he loved, liked it.
0: yeah, he loved the notoriety that came with being with her. But she realized really quickly that he was using, using her. her. Yeah. yeah. And so she, they divorced also that. after three months. And then again, the press blamed her for that divorce that she couldn't tame this young wild guy. And then when Marion passed away, alone in her apartment in 1937 at the age of 55, Anne was again shamed in the press and blamed for this. The women had not spoken since before the trial, but Marion had reached out to Anne only one week before her death. Anne ignored her call. She didn't call her back. So the press blamed Anne for driving her mother to poor health with the trial and then ignoring her when she
1: reached out was the final straw that killed her. Does Anne get a happy ending at all? Um,
0: <laughs> we're almost there. I, I'm going to let you decide if it's happy or not. Okay. I'm not sure. So then she goes on to marry a rancher, and they stayed together for a few years. And the press claimed that working on a ranch all day <laughs> meant she was simply too tired at the end of the day to put up much of a fuss. So that's how she managed to keep that husband for so long because she was too tired of working to be a bad wife. But then they said... <sighs> Then they, they divorced eventually, and the, press say, the press say that she, they got a divorce because Anne is too prissy, and she doesn't like working with her hands anymore, so she leaves her rancher husband and goes back to her city life. She can't win. I know. This is like being Selena Gomez. Then she met a married radio DJ who had a well-known show in the Bay Area, and they started an affair. The day he left his wife for Anne, his wife committed suicide. Ooh. But before alerting their family members that she had died, he and Anne got married. Then he informed his family. And he told them that he was just simply too in love with Anne to not be married to her for another second. And that's why they rushed the ceremony. So police literally told him, your wife has died. And he and Anne get in the car and literally go get married. So in the, in the moment that he finds out he's capable of getting married, that's what he does. They were both actually arrested on suspicion of murdering his wife and staging it as a suicide because witnesses saw them sitting in a car outside the wife's home as the wife was taken out in an ambulance.
1: That is very suspicious.
0: But they didn't have any proof, so they were let go. Do they
1: know how she killed herself?
0: Pills. Okay, An overdose of pills. So in the 1940s, this dumbass... Theory started going around that because women gained more rights and power at work and school and in politics, doctors believe this alleviated the desire for women to have babies. If women felt resentment at being encouraged to stay home instead of working, doctors believe this triggered spasms in the vaginal muscles <laughs> that made conception impossible. Doctors also believe that having a bad attitude could disrupt the body's natural hormone production, which also causes fertility issues.
1: I feel like I know so many men, now that I'm really thinking about it, that I feel like we're born in this era yep. and then like popped in a time machine and then I just happened to meet them. <laughs> and you just happened to date them. <laughs> yes, this is so unsettling. I know.
0: So Anne got caught up in that hype and told reporters that she'd been seen by a few doctors who had all claimed that if she really set her mind to it, she might conceive a child after all. And then that DJ husband of hers was also very religious. So between these dumb doctors and then the idea that praying hard enough will get you what you want, they thought that they could conceive a child. Never mind that minor detail about her not having fallopian tubes. (laughs) So unsurprisingly, they weren't successful, and they didn't have any babies. So during that marriage, they moved to Nevada and opened a casino and a nightclub. Then she ran for U.S. Senate. Then she divorced the DJ and dropped out of the Senate race. Then she married some other guy for a year before she divorced him and then went back to the DJ. They moved to Mexico, bought a ranch, and they lived a very quiet life there until she died of cancer in 1956 at the age of 41. So the public had compared Marian's many marriages to Anne's, but the key difference is that Marian chose her partners based off of their wealth, and Anne chose hers based off of love. And I mean, they both seem to have really shit taste in men, but at least one's a little bit more admirable than the other. Yeah,
1: and and one her upbringing kind of set her up to yeah not really know how to trust or no, read a room not or- at all. After the Hewitt trial and the attention
0: sterilization was getting, the procedure moved heavily into private practice rather than in state hospitals. Doctors with a private practice had a lot more privacy. They didn't keep the same kinds of records that state-run places did. So they could do things like ask a patient who was on heavy pain medication, would you like to be sterilized while you're here today? And then obviously, you know, she can't really give consent if she's inebriated like that. Before forced sterilization became illegal, eugenicists shifted their focus to almost completely giving up on encouraging the upper class to have more kids and instead put all of their attention on sterilizing the lower class, which was mostly women of color. Audrey notes in her book that specifically in California, Mexican women were heavily targeted. They tended to have larger families, mostly because of their Catholic faith that doesn't believe in birth control. Mm -hmm. So Mexican women were considered feeble-minded because they're, quote, hyper breeders who produce low quality children. So literally family size could be reason enough to sterilize you. For sterilizations, I mean, they still happen to this day and it's very much something I think that we all collectively need to be more aware of. It's important to learn about stories like these to remind ourselves that we, women, didn't always have the rights that we do today and they can be and in some states are currently being chipped away little by little so I just think you know women's rights are human rights we've
1: come farther than we realize we've come farther
0: but I think it's also crucial to remember that history can repeat itself unless we learn from it so we need to be really well acquainted with these stories and with our rights so that we can create a safe and Equal opportunity world for future generations. And I think that responsibility doesn't really fall on only the people who want to reproduce. I think it falls on everybody. Absolutely. This story of the sterilized heiress and the mother who orchestrated it is one that the Cooper Hewitt family has worked really hard to erase from their history. But people like Audrey Claire Farley have the power to bring this story out to show people what Anne went through what was stolen from her and how she was ultimately blamed for it, and that she's just one of many, many women who have experienced forced sterilization. Anne and Marion were both inadvertently put themselves on public trial for just living their lives. Drinking, smoking, partying, having sex, and ultimately not wanting motherhood were all things both women were equally shamed and judged for. Many people believe that Anne's lawsuit meant that she had wanted to be a mother and that she would adopt once she you know, settled down yeah. and, and wanted to uh, start a family. But really, Anne just wanted the people who committed a crime to pay for that crime. And she didn't want other women to go through what she went through. She didn't really want to be a mother. But that was her choice to make. Yes, exactly. And she wanted to set an example and show the world why it was wrong for anyone other than the woman in question to make that choice. So when reporters would ask her during each of her marriages when they planned to adopt, she would just sort of always brush them off. Aside from that short period where she thought prayer would allow her to conceive a child, she was pretty honest about just not really wanting to be a mother. She said that painting, singing, traveling, fine art, books, those were her passions in life. And while she wanted companionship from a husband, she didn't feel like her life was lacking in any way by not having a child. And that is the amazing forgotten story of the sterilized heiress, Anne Cooper
1: Hewitt. I didn't, I feel like an idiot, but I didn't really know that that was a thing that happened until I watched, you know, that show I keep telling you to watch, Yellowstone. Yeah. Keep telling you to do it. Um, and you have not, um, but the, my favorite- <laughs> I'm not better about it at all. <laughs> my favorite character, she has this like deep, that I, I feel like that's um understatement, resentment for her brother, because she gets pregnant um, in high school, I believe. And she goes to him, she confides in him, and she's a part of a very well-known family. And she goes to her brother and says, you know, I, I got pregnant, I need to do something about this. Will you take me to my abortion? And he takes her to, he won't take her to a regular place um, because word will get out and their name will be tainted. Okay. So he takes her to a clinic that's on a reservation. Okay. And I guess there's like a policy that when you get an abortion on a reservation, they sterilize you.
0: Yeah. I actually, there's a, there's so much in the book that I was just referring to that I read that doesn't cover all that stuff, but um, indigenous women are so, so targeted. targeted. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So he takes her there and does not notify her of the fact that she is not only getting an abortion but he is ruining then the chance of her ever being able to reproduce yeah and she didn't know this until later on in life and she turns into this like very angry alcoholic and yada 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 watch the show anyways (laughs) the first time i heard that that ever could be a thing i was sick to my stomach oh
0: yeah i mean i went down this rabbit hole of studying sterilizations and stuff like i mean it's it still happens today it's horrific it's horrible and it's and there's the numbers that people can track mm-hmm. are really high
1: but what about the ones that we don't know about given the you amount know?
0: of doctors who didn't have to record those things because yeah. they it was their private practice they didn't have like the state breathing down their necks to
1: record stuff like that
0: mm-hmm. um it's way more yeah, it's so horrifying. any number that you find it's it's that's just like the beginning, basically.
1: Well, I'm really happy you covered that topic. I don't think a lot of people know about it. I know I didn't. So, yeah, great job. Uh, thank you. Let's go get some AC because I am sweating my butt off. This is our season finale. Did you realize that? Uh, no, I did not. Yeah. So, congrats to <laughs> us. <laughs> Another season down. Another season. D-
0: f- what's the f- f- finalized?
1: <laughs> really? Wait, I thought. It, wait, what's the phrase?
0: In the books? In the in the papers? in the papers oh a
1: conclusion um epilogue another one in the (laughs) books on the books. another one in the books well i don't know on the books (laughs) i don't know what it is (laughs) yep
0: anyways i'm ready to go jump in the pool sit in our inflatable Inflatable pool (laughs) pool. good (laughs) for us luxurious (laughs)
1: luxurious lifestyle we live (laughs) okay i love you love you too Bye. bye Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katharina. We'll see you next week.